0: To the blind person who is looking for freedom in being whatever I want to be, um, this this bit of fiction, you know, sets that straight, and it gives a picture of. I, don't know, I, mean, I think you end the play thinking, wasn't Cordelia beautiful, mm. and don't we, don't we want to emulate that? Welcome to Classical,
1: Etc, a show that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education.
0: You're in the studio with Shane Saxon.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of Classical Etc. Today I got a chance to sit down with my good friend Kyle Yonke and we talked about the play King Lear. We talked about just how immensely enjoyable this play is, about its depiction of the nature of freedom, as well as the power of great fiction. We decided to do something unique on Classical Etc. because Kyle and I were having so much fun talking about King Lear, we decided to break it into two parts. If you want to support this show, then you can follow it or you can share it with a friend. Now here's our conversation. Yeah. So what do you think about the thunderstorm? It starts, yeah. you start hearing thunder as they're saying lines and then, and so you know it's out there and then all of a sudden here's King Lear. He's been driven out of his kingdom by his daughters who um, are just flattering him and he's raging as the storm. Meanwhile, yeah. Edgar, the legitimate son of Gloucester also has run and he is somewhere out here and eventually they actually bump into each other and Edgar calls himself Mad Tom Yes. and <laughs> they have an interesting interaction. <laughs> So tell me how do you read the thunderstorm?
0: Um so the, the first thing it I mean it does I, I if I'm teaching this in a classroom I spend time with the snail imagery and talking about what does that mean? How does that relate to the decision that that Lear has made? Um and it really is I th- I think that the fool's point and and if we if we were to get to if I were to identify any like main you know, like fatal flaw in Lear um <clears throat> it would be his assumption that As a king, he can lay aside his house, he can lay aside his shelter um, and still be protected by with, you know, still have his honor and his dignity and his sovereignty defended because he believes he is a king. It's in his, uh, it's in his nature, right? It's his, mm-hmm. you know, his, his essence. So basically, the assumption that, or the the assertion is that he doesn't need a house. Mm. I'm a king. I don't need a house. I don't need a kingdom. I don't need a rule, you know, rulership in order to garner um, honor and and dignity and sovereignty. And the fool's point is, uh, so perhaps in in human behavior with people who flatter you. But nature doesn't care. Hmm. I mean, that brings us back that, you know, that's part of the, what Edmund sees in the world is that nature doesn't care yeah. about your dignity and your sovereignty. Um, and that's, I mean, Lear Lear is punished yeah. by the thunderstorm. Yeah. And and he feels it too. You you can see him slowly breaking down as it starts to dawn on him, I'm not a king, I'm just a man. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and his um his sort of his his identity sort of comes to him in horror. Um, at that moment, and I think I think all of it is is there's there's this pinpoint moment in the text where I think Lear finally confesses he's going insane, where mm. he says it's happening now, and it's it's fascinating. It's right at the moment when he's about to to seek shelter um, in a peasant's hovel. So mm. the fool is complaining because the fool. Peasant, sense to come out of the rain, right? Um, and Kent is with him. Kent is in disguise, a, 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 a advisor and a servant to the king, who's also been banished, who's come back in service to the king. He is with the king, and he's trying, begging the king to you know seek shelter, find shelter, shelter uh, in this peasant's hovel that's mm-hmm. that's nearby because he loves the king. He's is as a good servant, and he doesn't, you know, he loves the king as a as as a man, not as a king, yeah. right? which means he's not a flatterer. Mm-hmm. Which is what got him banished in the first place, and why he had to be in disguise to come back. Um, But to this prospect of bowing his head, you know, and if I were directing this play, it'd be very important to me that the the door of the peasant's hovel is shorter than King Lear, so Mm -hmm. that he would have to bow his head, you know, um, a a physical action that's significant for a king in order to stoop and and enter. Um, And right before he does it. Uh, he says, "My wits begin to turn," mm. and I think that's a signal to the reader: this is the thing that's hurting Lear, that's driving him, and ins- that's breaking his sense of who he is and what he is, and you know what what it's all about. When you were mentioning him raging
1: against, you know, the higher powers and yeah. beginning to lose faith in some ways. One of the things that strikes me about Lear as you begin the play is that he's always summoning by Jove and by Jupiter mm, and Apollo mm-hmm. and uh, Diane. And, you know, it's yeah. only later that he's rebuked, I think, by Ken, who says, if you say by Jupiter, I say by Juno. And, you know, yeah. there's yeah. all of this. You know, Shakespeare has said this in pre-Christian England, and so for some reason that means they all follow the Roman gods. And uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> But that seems significant. He's losing his faith in Mm -hmm. the Roman gods as the play goes forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Losing his faith, um, losing his sense of like the hierarchy of order. He's, and this is important too. And, and we, it's important not to stop here because Shakespeare doesn't stop here, but he does come to something of Edmund's conclusion about the world Mm. that there, like what I thought was going on, that I was a King sovereign, like, like, I mean, you can almost say like the other gods, yeah. right? Um, and that was in my nature, and that's who I am. And and their order in the universe upholds that. Um, that's crushed by the thunderstorm. Lear comes to discover that, no, I am I am nothing but a man. Hmm. And that's not something very, as significant as he thought it was, at least at least initially. Again, I don't, Shakespeare doesn't stop there. Um,
1: so let me ask you this about the storm. At one point, his trajectory is heading towards madness. But at one point, he all of a sudden, either in his mind's eye or some directors put characters on the stage, he goes, I haven't taken care of these poor ones. Yeah. And there seems to be a dawning of his responsibility. How do you interpret that?
0: Um, it, Yeah, there, there's – I don't know that it, it it yet becomes a full-fledged dawning of his responsibility mm-hmm. because it lines later, he's – losing his mind in, in talking to Edgar, um, he, he has very important lines to Edgar where, where um, he, he gets to look at Edgar who who has disguised himself in order to hide from his father who has falsely accused him of desiring, you know, patricide. Um, I mean, Edgar's, Edgar's wretched. And in order to, his disguise is, he disguised himself as, I mean, he's, you know, Messing up his hair, he's stripping off his clothing, he's sticking, you know, like, uh, pine needles and things like that in his arms so that he looks insane. And Lear sees this, and Lear says, uh, basically, like, yes, this is man. Mm. Y- you are the thing itself. This is man, unflattered. He calls him a unaccommodated man. Yeah. So man without accommodations. And Lear sees this as, like, this is truth. Mm-hmm. And he begins to, he says, off, off, you lendings, and begins to take off his royal garments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is still... It's still Lear wrestling with his problem, right? And and running up against his his sorrow that his sovereignty has been crushed. It's not yet, you know, a love for his common man or mm-hmm. a, a, the love, the fatherly love for his people that a king should have. Um, it's more a despairing, I was not the king that I thought I was. We are all wretched. Yeah. Um, which that also doesn't do much for the poor, right? Right. Um, but yeah, but it's a beginning. It is an insight um, in terms of you know how how the process that Lear goes through to learn what he learned.
1: Yeah. So the story continues with the Gloucester plot. He yeah. decides to take. He regrets not taking Lear's side. They pluck his eyes out. Yeah. He is sent out. Edgar finds him. Doesn't tell him who he is. Edgar's his legitimate son who loves him and Gloucester asked to be taken to the Cliffs of Dover. Mm-hmm. And you have this extremely strange scene. Yes. So talk that's about wonderful. that.
0: Yeah. Um Yeah. So this is where, because we've been talking about the, this American idea of liberty and sovereignty and defining its boundaries. Um, this is where that second uh, aspect of King Lear that I love comes into play, which is the, uh, the defense for literary ability and why that's necessary. Because the, the question is then – uh, we left Lear in a pretty bad spot. We we left Lear in despair, um, unflattered, realizing basically that that in the eyes of nature, um, he's nothing. He he's utterly insignificant. Um, and if Shakespeare were to end there, that's a depressing play, and that's and I I don't think it's a true play either. Although flattery is false, we all know that. So so then you're left with this question of okay, we, we've we've denied flattery. But now we've pushed it all the way to this extreme of of despair. How do we get out? What? How do we redeem and and, and rescue this? Which you talk about is odd thing to say in a tragedy, but but I really do think this is you could call it a redemptive tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, um. But yeah. So, so the scene is this that that. Um, well, let, let me answer the question, and then I'll, I'll I'll explain the scene. Like, how do we get out? I think the one answer to that question is fiction, hmm. literature is, is stories and imagination. That's how we get out, because I think that's what Edgar does uh, for his father yeah. to cure his father's blindness. So, so Glouc- Gloucester is on his way to Dover um, to throw himself off the cliff to commit suicide because his li- his eyes have been put out. He's blind. He was wrong. He's come to the discovery that that the son who he thought was after him is actually good. Mm. And the son who he trusted is bad. Um, and he has no way of, uh, uh, setting that right seeking revenge. It's too late. He's already banished the good son. And so he's on his way to Dover to, to commit suicide. And his son takes him not to Dover, but out into the middle of a field. And I always tell my students to picture this because it is, it's strange and funny, but, but, serious at the same time. he takes him out to the middle of a field, tells him it's Dover, tells him this long gives him this long poetic description and you, and you can look at it in the text. he's he is Edgar's a good writer. he's bending over backwards to put an image of Dover into his father's mind to make it convincing, to make mm-hmm. it, you know come to life in his father's imagination. And then he tells his father you're right at the edge of the cliff, leaves him up there. Gloucester has this line about, I shall need no more leading now. Um, And he throws himself off what he thinks is a cliff, uh, which is really him just flopping down in a field, right? Um, It's kind of, it goes to show Edgar has a firm hold over this man's imagination, you know. And then, so then Edgar runs up to him and in a new voice um, and with a different tone, speaks to him as though he were, as though Edgar were a fisherman, down on the shore beneath the cliffs of Dover Mm -hmm. um, and tells him, I just saw you fall from the top of the cliff and you came all the way down and, and you, you know, hit the rocks and here you are alive. You know, what happened? There's, they have a whole, a whole, you know, conversation develops around this as, as Gloucester is trying to wrap his mind around like what, what are you telling me? And the man tells him like, there's a demon up on the cliff that led you there. And, you know, but I think it all, it all culminates, culminates in this one line, um, which comes pretty early on when when Edgar first runs up to him in the guise of a fisherman, or in the we'll say in the voice of a fisherman, um, and he says to him, "Thy life's a miracle." And I like to talk to students about, you know, is Edgar doing a good thing here hmm. in deceiving, tricking a blind old man, which is really what he's doing. Um. And, you know, I mean, you get you get the typical responses of like, well, yeah, I kind of see he's doing it to help him, but also it's a little uncomfortable. Um, and he's he's lying. You know, Edgar's telling a, a falsehood. This is, it's not true. Um, you can also bring in that question of, is Edgar flattering his father? But then I point him to that line, thy life's a miracle. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what about that? Is is that flattery? Yeah. Is that not true? Um, and I think the rest of the play has something to say about that. You know, takes that a step further in answering is is life a miracle and should it be considered as such. Um but that alone I think is is sort of it's a key to how Lear later comes out of his madness, how his how his madness is cured. You could almost say that great literature is the only way
1: to teach blind people that life is a miracle. Precisely. Yes, exactly. You point out that Some commentators or normal readers would look at at Lear's behavior there and say, oh, Lear is going mad. I actually read those very words in a commentary of Act 5 where it says that that line that you quoted is proof that he's finally gone insane. And I think it goes back to a point I was making earlier, and that is Shakespeare follows the tragic formula of fatal flaw, change in fortune, and then anagnoresis realization of the fatal flaw and then coming to grips mm-hmm. with it to a T. Mm-hmm. But the point of, of that, that flow being a great storyteller is not following it necessarily. It's using it to accomplish yeah. something so much more. And I think that's a very part of what he's doing in the play with the Edgar, you know, using that fiction uh, to save his father's life. In, in a sense, the broader Scope of the tragedy. Why do we watch tragedies, even though everyone dies at the end, and it makes us feel sad? Because yeah. of what they do, how they yeah. work in our hearts and minds and imaginations.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, a well-made one um, dignifies a human being. Mm. Yeah. If I can, um, if I can just say uh, quickly that that yeah, I mean, I th- you just mentioned making use of the form. I think Shakespeare, uh, perhaps, his greatness lies in his ability to do that. So. Fully And so well, he understands so completely the place of imagination um, in in sort of in the human uh, experience and the human, you know, know, speaking to the human condition. And I think that that, um, uh, you know, brings up another theme that's peppered throughout the whole play of bringing something from nothing, Mm. that uh, this is a line I'm getting this from something that the fool says to Lear. Um, can you make nothing? Can you make? Uh, can you make no use of nothing? Mm. And it's referring to the line that that uh, what Cordelia says at the very beginning. To to you know, when Lear asks her, "What do you say to me? To to speak? You know how you how you love me and how you honor me," and she says nothing, my lord. Um, and I think Shakespeare's goal there is to to show us that that line, that truth, the truth in that line is truly something, mm. and the uh, the noise, all the something of the flatterers um and the you know the liars in the play all of that in the end uh comes to nothing and i think you know shakespeare does such a profound job of, of using the form to show us how in literature you know through literature through through a play you know you can make a play meaningful it's, it's just play but it's profoundly meaningful and, and through that you can bring something out of nothing um, miraculously.
1: Yeah. And Lear himself, in response to Cordelia, says nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. And yeah. that's the lie he believes that and that drives the play. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So the play rolls into the end. Everyone dies through various reasons. We, we've left out so many characters and yeah. movements of the plot and such. But ultimately, everyone dies yep. except for Edgar, yeah. uh, Kent, and mm-hmm. Albany, yeah, so we've talked about uh, your the idea of freedom warring against the idea of of seeing seeing the beauty of life and what life you know pertains to the responsibilities it has. Mm-hmm. any closing thoughts on Lear and those two themes?
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely I mean that the, the end of the play puts to the test um, the two. Uh, convictions that we had at the beginning. Cordelia's conviction about the world, which matches what Edgar says, that life's a miracle. I think Cordelia would agree. Um, Cordelia's conviction, which doesn't seem to work for her, um, and then Edmund's conviction, that no, life is not a miracle. Like Growing and prospering is at all up to your ability to take what mm. you can through your wit and through your strength. Yeah. So those two um, ideas are at odds in Act 5. And Act 5 Contains the battle between the French forces, which Cordelia has married the King of France, um, and Edmund's forces. So they're they're physically fighting, but it's also it's a it's a conflict of of their their two ideologies. So before this happens, Cordelia um, gets uh, sort of charge of King Lear. He is, he has completely lost his mind. Um, he's passed out. They found him in the field. They take him in, and she gives him shelter. And there is a a beautiful scene that follows. Straight in the in the in the in the same vein as Edgar's uh, redeeming of his father's mm-hmm. despair, um, where uh, Lear basically wakes up in Cordelia's arms, um, that she is tending him, caring for him, and he opens his eyes and sees her. Uh, the first thing he does is he mistakes her for an angel, mm-hmm. which I think is that's important because this is the daughter that he's banished. This is the daughter that he's mistreated and abused. It would be so easy for her to walk away and say, fine, I'll watch from afar as your kingdom crumbles yeah. and I'll have my vengeance. But she doesn't. She comes back um, at the risk of everything. Um, <clears throat> and so he, he can't believe his eyes. It, it's too good to be true. You could almost say it's miraculous, yeah. right? So yeah. so he gets this feeling um, and, I, and he delivers this line which I think there's an important connection to be made with, with he says uh, to her, be your tears wet. He's feeling her tears, Mm -hmm. her tears of pity fall on his, uh, on his cheek. Um, And I think that just the full arc of, of Lear's character to feel the wetness of the rain in the thunderstorm and to be crushed by it and to discover I am nothing. What I thought I was is nothing. And then to feel the tears of pity from his loving daughter who says, no, you were not what you thought you were, but you are still something to be pitied and something uh, with dignity—you mm. know, self-evident mm-hmm. dignity. Um, and she also tells him not to kneel. You know, something that ought to stand up as as a human being. That arc for Lear to be crushed and then to feel the miracle of "Am I still, you know, valued?" Yeah. Um, it, it's it's beautiful, and it, it puts Lear for the for the final scene. You know, the final showdown in this place where I think an average reader might look at his behavior and think now he's insane because he's – they're losing. They, they do lose the battle. He gets taken off into captivity. He's yeah. going with Cordelia into captivity and he's thrilled. He's happy. He's smiling. He's excited to sit in a prison cell with his daughter. And I think the average way to look at that, you, I mean, you look at that and you think like, well, now he's really lost his mind. Yeah. But I think Shakespeare's point is like, no, he's finally found his mind. Yeah. He's finally sane knowing what, what really matters. He has Cordelia, and nothing else. Um, nothing else really matters. Um, but then, of course, Edmund, he sends, he sends a message ahead of them. Um, and this is Edmund's darkest deed at the end of the play. He sends a message ahead of them to kill Cordelia and to make it look like suicide, mm-hmm. which I think is uh, th- the depth of his evil, is to take you know the goodness of Cordelia and make it, Seem as though to the world that it despaired, yeah. which of course is a lie. But it would be a, a final burial of this idea, of of, of Cordelia's ideology, right? Of, of her um, conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, his plan succeeds. She she is killed. Uh, the battle is lost. But Edmund is mortally wounded um, in the battle. Uh, well, in a duel with with, with Edgar, yeah. um, in the middle of that battle. So he's mortally wounded and he's dying, and, and his his aims have all come to fruition. But I think at the just in closing at the end of the play, you have Cordelia dead in Lear's arms, and the lament over that, and Ed, Edmund nearby, dying, and those two deaths become you know also as as they're you know contrasted, the two lives are contrasted in the beginning, the two deaths are contrasted in the end, um, and there is a profoundly weighty line when. Um, uh someone mentions you know to those who are gathered around Cordelia, someone mentions that Edmund has finally died mm. and the response is that's but a trifle here mm. it's It's just pushed aside yeah because nobody cares Edmund's dead fine, but Cordelia, right? So I think the the final victory of that vision that that life is a you know that life is a miracle. Um, in her death, Cordelia has meaning and significance, and she's she's uh, mourned. Whereas Edmund's belief about the world, that there's nothing but nature, there's no higher power, my liberty expend, extends as far as I want to push it, what he ultimately gives up in, in that philosophy is meaning, is significance, is, is his life having some, you know, traction and, and significance to the people around him. And I think it's a, it's a heavy and powerful um, assertion of, of where our dignity really lies. Mm-hmm. It, it, it lies in humility and it lies in self-sacrifice um and it, it you know it it lies in in being like cordelia um you know that 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 faith and that conviction in in human dignity and sacrificing yourself to it um rather than in some definition of there are no boundaries and i can be you know i can be whatever i want to be um and yeah so i mean that it you know that lesson i think to 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 well, as you said before, to, to the blind person who is looking for freedom in being whatever I want to be, um, this this bit of fiction, you know, sets that straight, and it gives a picture of. I don't know. I, mean, I think you end the play thinking, wasn't Cordelia beautiful? Mm-hmm. And don't we don't we want to emulate that? I don't think there's much more to say. All right. Well, thank you. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Et cetera. If you like the show and would like to stay connected, consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We greatly appreciate any support for our show and ask that if you liked the episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit memoriapress.com. To connect with us, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.